Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. This is one of the most important podcast interviews I have done so far. We have all been led to believe that children have hardly been touched by COVID-19. This interview reveals how children globally have been amongst the worst affected by this pandemic. Welcome to COVID-19 The Answers. I'd like to introduce you all to Mr. David Morley, President and CEO of UNICEF Canada. He is a prolific international speaker, commentator, human rights advocate and mobiliser with more than 30 years of experience advancing, advancing children's rights and sustainable development on the world stage. David has occupied senior positions in some of the world's most respected charities. He has been the executive director of Médecins Sans Frontières, Canada, president and CEO of Save the Children, and now for the past 11 years, president and CEO of UNICEF Canada. Welcome. Thank you very much for me. David, can you please tell us about UNICEF um, and what led you into the world of charitable organizations and children's charities in particular? Well, um, I sort of, I came into this, this work by accident, I think uh, we could say. Um, when I was doing my undergraduate, I uh, had a uh, work here in, in Canada, in Ottawa. Um, I had a particular interest in medieval Europe, and um, that's what I'd been, I'd been studying, and um, so, which, of course, does not immediately lead to job prospects. And uh, a, f a friend of our, my family, who was a member of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, was coming to Ottawa. I was unemployed, and he, uh, my parents, arranged for me to uh, have breakfast with him because, you know, maybe I could get a job or something, or he could point me in the right direction. Um, and I'd worked. Uh, all the summers during university, uh, I'd worked as a as a camp counselor for children with special needs. And when I told this family friend what I'd done as my summer job, he said, "You have your whole life ahead of you to work in an office building in Ottawa or Toronto. What you should do is go and volunteer at." this organization. It was an organization set up by Costa Ricans with Canadian support in Costa Rica for uh, children who've been living on the streets. And uh, so I thought, well, okay, I guess. And uh, I went to volunteer. And, and you know, it, it, uh, I'd been a, you know, grown up as a middle-class Canadian. Um, and I'd expected when I got to Costa Rica, to find that these kids had would have just been crushed by the poverty that they'd had that they they'd experienced and life on the streets and life in in pretty dickensian uh institutions uh, and instead i found here are these these kids with an amazing ability 
to, to, to care for each other, creativity, sparks so filled with life, you know? Yeah. And um, so I was going to go for three months and, um, well, I stayed longer and it turned into a career because of those kids, because those first kids that I knew. And I mean, now it's very nice because of Facebook. Those kids are, you know, some of them are, this is 40 years ago. Some of them are grandparents now. And we, uh, we, so am I. So we, sh- and we share notes on grandparenting and stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it's lovely. But I, that's why I'm not a medieval historian is because of those kids. <laughs> And the children of the world are glad of it. What a fantastic story. I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate. And could you please tell us about UNICEF? Um, What is the organization about? What does it do? Well, UNICEF began um, right after World War II, when there was famine and risk of famine in Europe and in Asia. and, And the United Nations one of the first things it did um, was it 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 realized that providing support to children who had suffered through those two wars was vital, and that if they were going to have if we were going to have peace and prosperity in the world, we had to be sure that 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 care was taken for children. And uh, so we we were started uh, before the United Nations was even one year old, and as the uh, as uh, as the year a few years went by, and the acute phase of the humanitarian emergency in Asia and Europe ended, um, and the decolonization process started, UNICEF continued to grow to uh, to help um, help situation of of health and education and child protection in many countries and and when the convention on the rights of the child was finally uh passed and ratified a bit more than 30 years ago um unicef was named in it we're the agency named in the convention on the rights of the child that it is our responsibility to protect and promote the rights of children we're the only agency named in it and um while while we know that these sort of human rights treaties and conventions are not um, are rarely fully fulfilled, uh, this the Convention on the Rights of the Child is the most signed and ratified human rights treaty in in the world in our history. Um, so that's what UNICEF's job is to work with with governments and community groups uh, and and the private sector and civil society to ensure that, to do our best to ensure that children's rights are protected and promoted, that children are, are they, they have adequate health, health care, that they have adequate education. And it's, um, we're in this, this, this unique position where we're part of the United Nations, but for us in Canada, UNICEF Canada is also a civil society organization. So we we have the flexibility of civil society and we have the the um, authority of the United Nations. Um, and that gives us our mandate to do what we can for children here in Canada and also around the world. 
That's wonderful, David. Thank you for that. Moving on to our questions now. Part one, this involves the effects of the pandemic on children. So the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on children has been significant and in some ways catastrophic. A modelling study published last week in The Lancet stated that globally 5.2 million children aged 17 years or under had been orphaned due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This equates to a child becoming an orphan every six seconds. These figures were calculated by the researchers up to October 2021, and they are projecting that figures up to January 2022, once calculated, will rise to 6.7 million children orphaned. The consequences of this are devastating and enduring, resulting in institutionalisation, poverty, abuse, mental health problems, adolescent pregnancy and chronic and infectious disease. Of the 20 countries in the study, low and middle income countries were particularly affected, though every continent has been touched by this. Also, this is likely to be an underestimate as the World Health Organization believes mortality estimates show that the African region, for example, has underreported death rates by a factor of 10. This is truly alarming. These results are outpacing global COVID-19 deaths. This is all happening on the back of a widely held misnomer that children have hardly been affected by the pandemic because their rates of severe disease, hospitalisation and death have been lower than adults. Though the severity of COVID-19 as it applies to children is beginning to change with the onset of the variants, which we will come back to later. In its 75th anniversary report entitled Preventing a Lost Decade, UNICEF has stated that COVID-19 is the worst crisis for children in its 75-year history and has called for urgent action. This interview today aims to focus on some of the main crises that UNICEF has highlighted directly affecting children globally today, namely poverty, education, mortality, immunisation, nutrition and abuse. David, at the beginning of the pandemic, did UNICEF anticipate children being orphaned on such a mass scale due to COVID? Or was this, uh, was this unexpected collateral damage of the pandemic that you had to account for? Secondly, what measures are UNICEF taking to mitigate and support orphan children globally due to COVID? Well, I think those are, you know, those are such shocking and sobering numbers. And it's a reminder that for us uh, at UNICEF, we've, we have uh, been saying, we quickly realized that the pandemic, although the, the mortality of children was, was lower than that of adults, and, and we don't know all the results of that, as, as you're saying yet, but this was absolutely a child rights crisis, a children's crisis. Uh, we know that uh, at the height of the pandemic, more than a billion children were out of school, and we still don't know. Uh, we don't. We don't think that all of those children are going to go back to school. We know, and we'll talk more about uh, immunization rates for children and for poverty. But I think none of us, none of us, really knew at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, 
how long it would go on for and how devastating it would be. And this issue of, of children losing their parents to COVID and then what does that mean for them is, is one which, which I think um, we had not been ready for. I don't think the world was ready for it. You know, our work, because we're, as part of the United Nations, a lot of our work, uh, as as I mentioned earlier, it's either with local civil society or with governments. So to try and help the children who've been orphaned, we work a lot with ministries in, in countries all around the world, the ministries of family, the ministries of social affairs, what what they may be called. And so we are... Um, We'll be working with them to try and um, try and find models of care. If there isn't care for extended family, the members of extended family um, try to give some have policies that will give them support. Um, but we try to we, we encourage governments not to do institutionalization of children, to find community-based responses which uh, will be a way to care for those children. I think in, in, in the vast majority of, of cases, children will be cared for by extended family. And I think if we even think of here in Canada, when there are tragedies of children who are orphaned, extended family is, is usually the first to, to step in. Um, but then we have to be sure the policies are there that will give the support that those extended family those extended families need in a way you know the the crisis of of uh, 20 years ago when uh, aids was having such a destructive swath through sub-saharan africa we learned a lot from all those grandmothers who started caring for their grandchildren. Mm. And we've learned about policies that can help with that. And we've learned, those of us who are from outside of those communities, have learned the phenomenal strength of those communities. And I think and I hope, because we're at the early days yet, that we will be able to learn from what happened, what the way communities responded, uh, and be able to support a similar response that's going to be needed this time. Thank you for that really good answer. The following questions are based around some of the figures stated in the UNICEF report and also extracted from UNICEF's website. We will also briefly examine how the Omicron wave has affected children and talk about COVID-19 and long COVID in children. Let's start with poverty. David, to allow the audience some perspective, what is UNICEF's definition of poverty? According to your website, 100 million more children could be living in multi-dimensional poverty by the end of 2021 compared to the pre-COVID era. What is multi-dimensional poverty and what plans does UNICEF have for addressing multi-dimensional poverty? The, the multi-dimensional poverty that we, um, that we use is, uh, it was first developed um, 
in um, Oxford University in the UK, and the World Bank has used it as well. And so we have, there are, it's very detailed, but I'll try to stay high level. There's, um, there are 10 indicators, there's three main dimensions of poverty. Uh, when you add in the World Bank, it's people. It's it's less than a dollar and one dollar and ninety cents a day, but the under the health indicators that we look at, there is the nutritional status uh, and also the rates of under five child mortality. Mm-hmm. So we consider those. Then we look also at the years of schooling, and at the country level, um, and the level of school attendance so how many children are in of school age are in school and then there's a variety for living standards which um which go beyond just simple what's the money you you bring into the family it's what kind of cooking fuel do you use uh what's your sanitation is it um open defecation is it latrines is it plumbing um, do you have access? How far away is the nearest drinking water? Um, it, do you have electricity? What's your house? What's your house made out of? What are your assets in the house? How much, you know, how much furniture and and mm-hmm. things do you have? So we we look at all of those because in some cases people may be earning more than a dollar ninety cents a day, but they're not in an living in an environment. Uh, or in a region where their children are likely to get a chance to go to school, or they may be living far away from a health clinic. So they've got some money, but they don't have access to health care for their children. So that's why we want to look at the multi multidimensional poverty index, because it's just a more accurate way to really assess what what are the levels of poverty? And then, then, then for us at UNICEF, we that helps us decide where will we do our our programming as well, um, because we work in every country of the world. Uh, it, we have a lot of choices that we must make, and and this is one of the key drivers to where we will invest our resources. Mm. Uh, with multidimensional poverty increasing, what plans do you does UNICEF have for addressing that? All the component parts of our work, um, we can look at them more in detail, but mm. it's our investment that we try to get in education. It's, it's the investment in community health services so that uh, the child mortality rate will more will decline. Um, it's the investment that we will make. Uh, we we also make in in um, where possible uh, improving improving the economy so that of, of a place that things will be able to become more sustainable. But education and health are so important. I mean, we know. I, you know, I, sometimes I feel for me that we take it for granted here mm. because we have access to these things, but. Um, those are two of the areas that we work very much. Well, that's, that's much of our of our uh, everyday work of of UNICEF is involved in those those two areas as well as child protection. But those two areas, particularly, to address the multidimensional poverty. 
So if we move to education, children going to school or not going to school was an incredibly polarizing topic nationally and globally during the pandemic. The issue has multiple layers of complexity ranging from child, teacher and community safety. Debates and issues around vaccine mandates for children and or teachers and so on. During the pandemic, over 1 billion children were affected by school closures and at least 463 million children worldwide were unable to access remote learning during COVID-19 school closures and lockdowns in 2020. Worldwide, during the pandemic, there have been 1.3 trillion hours and counting of in-person learning lost. With these figures in mind, how do we balance the opening and closing of schools? That's, um, as you say, it's been an issue everywhere, right? From every country of the world to, to I, I'm sure, every community where your listeners live it's been and it's an emotional topic as well we um at unicef one of the first things that we did was we said teacher once vaccines were available we said teachers should be considered frontline workers and they should get they should be right up there with the frontline health workers and uh, emergency responders to get vaccines when they were first out so that we could open the schools. Because we also felt uh, advocated that schools should be the last to close and the first, uh, first to open. That if we're um, reopening, well, anyhow, if we're, if we're reopening all of our um, restaurants and everything, but we should, we, we should be sure to protect schools first and make sure that they get open and not sometimes they were lagging behind, you know, um, because the, the education loss, there's, there is no question. All the results we're starting to see in Canada, let alone, and this is also in other countries that children are, you know, have lost a full year of education that there are, um, only speaking, here in in my province which is ontario um, um and i know this because my spouse is involved in in educational research uh basically children who are in grade two have lost a year's worth of reading grade one where you usually learn to read now what's that going to mean as we as they go on and we see then the social loss the social interaction loss that has happened uh as well so we know we need to be safe for children and we know that investments in and and with the because we're not so sure what what omicron will mean but if we we've got if masks are going to keep help keep people healthier longer then we should keep having mask mandates uh we should try to encourage the ongoing vaccination of, of young children and go for a pediatric formulation as well so that preschools and daycare centers can can be open as well we we those are open safely we have to give schools priority which is right on the heels of that of our health system i think and <clears throat> excuse me and that 
that's going to be the way that we'll see schools uh, open and and stay open. Moving on to child mortality. While the hospitalization and death rates for children are on the whole lower than for adults, there have been significant indirect effects on children, such as a strained healthcare systems, preventing sick children from accessing full medical care. Access to regularly scheduled immunization has been blocked or postponed and antenatal care has now been affected. In your opinion, how are these indirect impacts of COVID-19 going to affect children now and in the future? You know, every, in 1960, so it's not 60 years ago, we, we is when we started um, collecting good data on the global uh, under five mortality rate. Um, every year, that rate has got lower, like fewer kids, fewer children under five have died from preventable causes up to up to 2020, which is a, which is over 2019 is the last year that we've got full data for one of the huge reasons for that, the strengthening of health systems, but it's been the widespread access to immunization to the childhood to childhood immunization and the further um, and the improvement and the development of of those vaccines. So it seems to me logical, and I we don't have all the data in yet from 2020, um, but with all of the children who have missed immunization, and we weren't at 100% coverage, but we were at about, we were very high global coverage for childhood immunization. And it's our our statistics are that at least 70 million children missed out last year. I suspect it's more, but that's what we can see right now. It's going to mean that for the first time, that because of the pandemic, for the first time in 60 years, the number of children under the age of five who die from from preventable causes is going to go up. It's that is another another huge tragedy of this of the pandemic you know because i have to say that that's in the context of the fact that in the last generation we have seen a child survival revolution there's no question you know that that we used to it used to be um you know 30 years or so ago the the under 15 million children under the age of five died every year from preventable causes and by 2019, it was under 5 million children a year. Now, that's way too many, like 5 million children, like the heartache for those families and, 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 and siblings and parents and grandparents is, is horrific. But it is only one third of the number, right? It's down from 15 million to 5 million. So we've had this incredible child survival revolution. Um, and it's being stopped in its tracks by the pandemic. And I think it is, I mean, I know for us at UNICEF is we try to think, how are we gonna be able to rev up the immunization programs again? Um, because those in and of themselves, it's not like it's, you know, 
you in Vancouver and me in Toronto going as volunteers to do these things. It's working with local health systems, strengthening ministries of health, community health workers who are doing all of the all of the immunization. We provide training and, and the and the vaccines, but um, we have to. We've got to start that up again, and um, and and the wonderful thing uh, we see is that um, on very broad scale, as more and more children survive, um, parents start advocating more and more, and they they don't have to be as afraid that their children are going to die. You know, they then they start advocating for better education, and we start seeing parents pushing for more education for these kids. And um, uh, so it becomes, it, it's a bedrock of a positive cycle. And um, that's why we have to, that's why it's so terrible the way it's been affected by the pandemic and um, why it's so important for us to get that started again. Sobering. So if we move to nutrition, looking nationally in Canada, in November 2021, I read a report that 60% of Canadians feel worried that they are unable to feed their families. Internationally, according to UNICEF, an additional 6 to 7 million children suffered from malnutrition directly due to COVID. On top of that, an additional 132 million people in the world went hungry due to COVID-19, of which 44 million were children. Clearly, the pandemic has added an additional burden globally to an already difficult problem of feeding our planet. David, can you please comment on the impact a poor diet has on the growth and development of a child? The issue of stunting is stunting and wasting when children don't get enough food is one that can have lifelong impacts if it goes on long enough you know the, those early years when there's um and as a child is developing as uh, as their physical and intellectual capacities are developing without enough food then they don't get the simply the fuel that they need and if it can be caught early enough and enough food and enough nutrients can can go there then you children can recover but if it isn't it can have a lifelong effect on on that child who and as they become an adult so it's one of the reasons why like you know we sometimes we separate out health as a medical thing and nutrition as i guess a nutritional thing one could say but but why we have to look at these holistically because um and it's why often in our you know the if when you're in a a, a rural clinic somewhere um off the beaten track uh that you we will see all of those coming together with with nutritional supplements that we that we try to give at the same time as we're giving the the um, uh, immunization or or uh, and 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 so we need that as an integral part of of healthcare for a child. We um, 
because if we if we don't do that, um, then even if there are educational opportunities for a child, they can't take full advantage of it, and that's a terrible loss. Mm. And also um, malnourishment of children impairs their ability to fight disease because their immune system yes. is weakened too. Um, another concerning impact in society is the mounting risk of violence and abuse during the pandemic. Families in total desperation have had to make unthinkable decisions in order to stay alive and feed themselves and their families. According to the UNICEF report, up to 10 million more girls will be forced into child marriage before the end of the decade due to COVID-19. Disruption in services related to violence against children was reported in 66% of countries globally due to COVID. Lockdowns resulting in school closures also put children at increased risk. There are so many variables to come out of these statistics that I thought I would ask you what springs to mind with regards to these impacts on children. One of the things that we forget about, you know, you mentioned when you mentioned this, the combination of the school closures and, and increasing poverty, because one of the things that schools do is they're a form of child protection as well because the parents um when parents if they're having to work wherever they're working in fields and wherever schools are a place where they know their children are safe or should be should be safe um and when the schools when schools closed if parents still have to work that's where they get if they're able to find work but that's where the risk of child exploitation increases if the children are left alone, if the children, um, and, and, and we see it, we see a, a direct correlation between schools closing and violence against children increasing and what you mentioned, the early enforced child marriage going up uh, when schools close. So, I mean, that's yet another reason why, why we, advocated to keep schools open as much as possible because not only the education but but they do become almost the f first line uh defense against uh, against um, child exploitation and abuse and you know i i just think of various places where i've been fortunate enough to work and and i can think of of teachers in in countries as disparate as as ethiopia and, and uganda and sierra leone all saying to me um we know that we know that the girls are safer when they're here and when they're with us and uh, so having schools as a place for child protection is really really key and why we think that keeping the schools open or as much as possible is is so important um we're now moving on to the direct impact of covid19 on children acutely and long covid in canada the number of people 19 years and under with covid19 currently stands at around 60 651,000 out of a total in canada of 3.2 million um, cases equaling 20 percent of the total cases so back in May 2020, this age group made up 4% of cases. 
Worldwide, with the Omicron wave of infection, we've seen a much larger increase in hospitalizations and deaths in children, particularly those under the age of five, who at present in most countries are not or cannot be vaccinated. David, has UNICEF been called to provide support for increased medical services in low and middle income countries as a, as a result of the Delta and Omicron wave to children? Because we work with, with ministries of health, um, what we're finding, more of, our, more of our efforts are still going into ensuring that immunization comes up and that vaccines are are distributed that's for that's our part of of the work right um is is um and those are the biggest requests that we're getting right now for me it's it's um uh around the issues of of vaccine equity and vaccine distribution um it's with all the crises, you know, going on in the world right now, it's um, just like any just like any emergency room. Um, we are triaging, and ministries of health, which are under pressure, are triaging and getting getting COVID vaccines and getting the routine immunization vaccines are really the uh, the immediate uh, the immediate need right now and and I should you know just thinking of vaccines I know we're going to talk more about vaccines but um, we are and and this may be off topic but I just don't want to be only pessimistic about vaccines um, because talking about non-covid vaccines there is this chance eh, of a of a malaria vaccine uh, after mm. all this time, all this time, and and um, we're involved in the in the trials with that because we're a vaccine because we distribute vaccines, um, and I think because of the impact of the the, the horrific toll that malaria takes, um, if that works, well then that'll be more than good news. That'll be excellent news, and I think that may counterbalance some of the difficulties that we're facing as a global society now um, because vaccines are key these days. Mm, yes, and I think the malaria vaccine is particularly good. I think it has a 75% efficacy, yeah. so that's, yeah. that's fantastic. It's incredible. It's incredible. And, and, yeah, and the way malaria can dodge things. I mean, mm. the, you know, it's – but anyhow, it's very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, no, that is very good. Um, David, um, with such a large jump in the proportion of paediatric COVID cases, long COVID in children is now a concern similar to adults. A previous guest of the podcast, Dr. Jason Maley, discussed a multidisciplinary approach to the care of adults with long COVID, involving a range of physician specialists and other healthcare professionals, such as physiotherapists, psychologists, OTs, for example, working as a team. Clearly, the multidisciplinary approach described requires skilled medics and support, as well as significant financial backing. Low and middle income countries will have higher SARS-CoV-2 infection rates due to a lack of access to vaccines. So how do you envisage these countries funding long COVID care for children? 
really, I don't know now how it's going to, how it will be possible. Because as I say, the, the triaging at ministries of health and, um, and departments of finance in, in low and middle income countries are going to have to deal with, with what they are facing. Um, uh, I think they're going to be dealing with other matters first and it's not out of any callousness or anything it's just where can they make the biggest impact uh, positive positive steps forward for their country so um, the kind of um, looking into those those very real and very important issues of long COVID I think are going to be uh, how those will be funded are still a bit down the road and exactly how those are going to be working. Please join us for the second part of our interview with David Morley discussing global vaccine equity.